0: Hey, I'm Ruben from Dub. Welcome to Connection Loop, our actionable podcast about building businesses with daily human connections. Connection Loop features long-form interviews with fascinating people in sales, marketing, and beyond. Enjoy today's episode and learn more about Dub at dub.com. Hey, guys, this is Ruben on Connection Loop. This is our podcast for all things kind of marvelous and interesting. Today, I've got a super interesting dude His name is Janaid, and he's going to talk about a couple of things. The first thing that kind of grabbed me right off the bat was the fact that his company is called No Degree. And I wanted to kind of understand that, and I figured I'd kind of wait to record the conversation to really understand what that means. But let's get into it, man. What's going on with you?
1: So, I mean, I'll keep it simple. So a lot. It's in the name, so I own nodegree.com and I help people without college degrees find jobs. And a lot of that there's a lot of content around that. I launched my podcast, you know, a couple of weeks ago called the No Degree Podcast. But my goal is to help those without college degrees because I talk to so many people without college degrees and they're like, I don't know what to do. Um, and then if you tell someone I'm not going to college, they are like, what are you going to do? Are you just going to flip burger for the rest of your life? Are you going to have a hard life? And it's like, you know, there's so many things you can do. It's just something you wouldn't think of. Like no one grows up and says, I want to be a claims adjuster or, hey, I want to work in SMS marketing or, you know, a lot of people work in random things that you've never heard about, but they make mm. good money. So I kind of want to share the stories and kind of say, hey, this is a viable career and this is how you would go about entering this career.
0: I mean, it's such a massive and yet niche audience. Yeah. And it's such an important problem that I think needs to be solved because, I mean, let's just face it. Look, I'm in sales. I'm in marketing. I'm in tech. Yeah. A lot of the great people in all of those industries, they didn't go to college. They started and they dropped out or they just never went. They have the hustle life and they went through life and they learned, you know, on the road and in the game and, you know, doing things. I think it's a tremendous cause that you have. What inspired you?
1: You know Reddit, right? So I was on Reddit. This was like 2013. So I was on Reddit and someone asked a question. For those of you without college degrees who make over six figures, what do you do and how'd you get the job? And it was like, I'm a claims adjuster. I repair elevators. I'm a surveyor. I operate this random vehicle. I have this certification. And it was like, how'd you get the job? Oh, my cousin, my uncle, my brother, someone, my friend from school, he told me I was at the right place, right time. And then I was like, why can't I be that friend? Right? And college was, you know, that was 2013. College was still expensive then. And now it's just astronomical. So I was like, why can't I be that resource And you saw that all these people were, if they didn't go down that route, they would have sort of had hard lives, but they kind of got this lucky break. And I was like, that's sort of unfair because all these jobs are out there and there's a lack of transparency. There's a lack of availability because a lot of these sites to even search a job, you know, you obviously Google exists and there's a search engine, but a search engine is only as powerful as the user behind it. If you don't know what to search, you'll never find it, right? Because that's how Google works. You have to search for something. So if you don't know that a claims adjustment is a job you would like, you'd never even search it. So I wanted to introduce people to all different types of careers. And then so they could figure out like, hey, you know what, this is me. This is not me. I could do this or my friend could do this.
0: You have a pretty impressive degree, though. It's not like you are trying to help people that potentially uh, a problem that you've had in your life. You went to Columbia. You've got a yeah. master's from Columbia. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, you did. That's an expensive school. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Especially being in New York. <laughs> yeah, I
1: mean, fortunately, my I grew up in New York City, so I didn't have to pay. Like, I was a poor kid in Columbia. So it was kind of, it was also an eye-opening experience. And I tell people, you know, people say, how can you sort of have this company? You have a master's degree. And I tell people, look, I was always good in school. School came easier to me than most people. When I went to college, like, there were a lot of classes. I was either the top student or a top three. Right. And it's not like I didn't study right in college. I did study. But, you know, there were some classes like I could walk in and I could pretty much not do anything. And I'll still be in the top 10 percent of the class. But I was good in school. But not everybody's good in school. Not everybody has that thing come easy for them. Like you have some people, they'll pick up a basketball and they'll be better than someone who's been, you know, at it every day. And that's just life. And I saw that people were stigmatized for not being good at school. So I saw that who the system helped, but there were a lot of people who were failed by the system. Like, if you're not good in school, it doesn't mean you're dumb. It doesn't mean you're a bad person. It doesn't mean you're unmotivated. Because oftentimes, he will say, why would I hire someone without a college degree who's unmotivated? And they assign all these negative qualities. And it's like, go to any college campus. Tell me those kids in Thursday night are really motivated, right? The kids who are having these crazy parties, right? Are those kids really motivated? They're just having a good time on their parents' dime, you know, the loans that they're taking out. So that was sort of my motivation in that just because I went to school and I did good, The best lessons in life, I tell everyone, the most important lessons in life, you don't learn in the classroom. And even though I did go to school, all the stuff, what really makes me me are the things I learned outside the classroom because I work corporate, but I wasn't happy. Right. I'm not a nine to five person. Like I woke up at 11 a.m. today and I only woke up because someone called me for a meeting. Right. I'm not a morning person and I'm not the traditional person. And a lot of the skills I had, like I was an actuary. And the fact is, if you're a sociable person, you're out there, you're keeping in touch. Your bosses don't care about that. Right. Whereas like I wanted to do something that really impacted people's lives. I wanted to sort of have start something like the no degree movement where it changed people because now I work with people and they're like, hey, man, thanks. you. helped me get this job. Hey, man, thank you. guided me in the right direction. Now I actually have hope. So it's like, you know, you don't learn that in school.
0: So what would you say the moment was or the, the multiple experiences that you had where you woke up and you said, hey, that's the segment that I want to help. Those are the people that I really want to help. Was there a person? Was there a story? Was there an experience? You know, so when I read that Reddit thread, I was like, yo, this is my lottery ticket.
1: Like, I'm going to be rich. You know, when you have this idea, and you're like, yeah, I'm going to be rich and all that. I always enjoyed helping people. And I started researching. I was like, look, I'm going to make it. I'm going to do this. And I could do so many things with this. And, you know, the first few years, there's a bunch of guys in the basement just figuring things out. I'm pretty sure you've been there where you're hashing out ideas. You're like, oh, we should do it this way. No, we should do it. And you pivot. You do this and that. And as I started going into it, and I kind of saw, like, schools are just so freaking expensive. It's, like, ridiculous. You know, and there are some people who think, well, you earn more, so therefore it's worth the money. And it's like, so what? There's a $10 book you can buy that could potentially earn you half a million dollars. That doesn't mean that book should be priced at $400,000 or it's a good buy at $400,000. And if you look at, you know, like the school system and you really look at it like college specifically, not like high school and below, because, you know, that's actually affordable. All colleges are the same price. You know, you take like the worst private school, it, it still costs just as much or close to Harvard. And think about it. Imagine if a Toyota Camry costs as much as Rolls Royce. And that's what it is in the college market. They Mm. charge based on the ability for the kids to buy, right? So they know, oh, kids can borrow up to $50,000. We'll charge $50,000. That's what the price is based on. It's not based on how much they're putting in because colleges were a tenth of the price before and they were actually higher quality and they were able to get by. It's not like, hey, you have a product and it costs $10,000. So that's why you have to price it at least $10,000. College is not like that. It's like, it's not like professors are multimillionaires, right? Sometimes they use graduate students to teach some classes, right? So it's like all these factors. And if you look at a college campus, I tell people colleges are in the business of education. Go to any college campus, perpetual construction, new rec center, new this, and who's paying it? And after you graduate, they ask alumni donations. They ask this and that. And it's like, come on, you guys don't have enough money? You're asking alumni donation from someone who took out well over 50 to 100K? It's like, how can they afford that?
0: You know, it's a real issue, man. I completely connect to that. You know, I went through the whole process up until graduate school and I would think to myself, here I am, I actually have a degree in entrepreneurship, which is yeah. the, the it's biggest funny. oxymoron. Yeah. Yeah, it is, it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's like instead of spending two years getting a degree in entrepreneurship, you should probably go try to start a business, yeah, which yeah, of course yeah. I was which I was doing when I was in school. Yeah and learning in the process but uh, you know it is an oxymoron but I think you know one of my key takeaways here is that technology is solving so many aspects of education and it effectively is democratizing it because with a presentation with a video with some sort of a story that could be told by some sort of a teacher and then distributed through some platform it's incredibly scalable and it's no. incredibly efficient. Why don't I see more of that? I see a bunch of, you know, online degrees and I see the ads, but why isn't that a big thing? Is it a profitability thing?
1: You know, I think is that people have to sort of understand how to structure it properly because it's not easy producing, con- you know, you produce content. It's not easy producing content. And then what happens is a lot of people sometimes gatekeep that content because they have to, you know, they charge for it. But, you know, there are it's just you have to do a little more research. Like Udemy is great and there's so many online courses. And I think like people just have to be good at filtering them. And, you know, that was one of the motivations for launching my podcast is like one of the episodes. Episode three is how to prepare for an interview because I was like, look, I want to release as much content for free as possible. So that look, I have other ways of making money. I wanna get the content away from free because the employers sort of, I make money off the employers, I make money from other aspects. I think the fact is, is that creating content is not easy and then it has to be part of your overall mix. And I think that's not easy for a lot of people. For if all you do is create content, unfortunately you have to monetize it some way, right? But if you can use a content as part of your overall strategy and a lot of people are not very strategic in business. So it's like that's sort of how where I come in pay. It's like all the content on my site is free, right? I generally recommend like free courses, free things. Or if I do recommend a book, I'll make sure it's like ten to twenty bucks. I'm not gonna recommend something that's like five hundred to a thousand bucks unless it's something that's gonna guarantee you a salary very quickly.
0: That makes sense. So with respect to your content, what kind of stuff are you working on? Obviously you got a podcast, which is great. Yeah. What other types of content are you producing?
1: Just written content, you know, so I'll go into, if you check out nodegree.com, I'll have content on like welder and I'll break down. It's just simplistic. So someone who has no idea what a welder is can go to that article and figure out what does a welder do? What's the day-to-day like? What are the skills required? Do you require certification? Who's it good for? Because I'm real with people. I'll tell people, Hey, if you like working with your hands, if you like this, this is a great job for you. And I'll say, con. sometimes you'll have long days. You'll work on construction sites. So if you have a dust allergy, just, this job's going to suck. So that way people can figure out like, oh, I like working on my hands. Oh, no, you know what? I got a bad back. This isn't for me. So that's sort of how I go. So I, I go into like 911 dispatcher, like EMT, security guards, all that stuff. And, you know, then I'll go into more the tech side. Like, how do you become like, hey, how do you become a cybersecurity? How do you work in cybersecurity? What certifications do you need? And I'll really break it down. Like, OK, you need the certification. It takes about two to three months, because a lot of times once people have the idea and you equip them with the beginning knowledge, then you can sort of really dig. Deep And that's why I launched a podcast where I'll interview someone who's a security guard. I'll interview someone who's a welder. And then they can get a deeper knowledge. And then I'll link to books on how to become a welder. So that way, my site is a starting point. And then look, if they want, they can go buy some books, they can listen to podcast. And then I tell them, look, check out the American Welding Society. Look, I can't specialize in everything, but I can lead people in the right direction. And that's my goal with no degree.
0: So how can people do a better job to put themselves out there to get their foot in the door, to get a step ahead of all the competition? You know, are we going into this with the assumption that someone without a degree has to do something special or different or better than people with degrees? Or should we kind of lose that assumption? No, you know,
1: unfortunately, that is a very accurate assumption. In some industries, if you go into any of the trades, they don't care about your degree. They're like, look, what have you done? What have you built? Right. Because you have something tangible. All right. In certain industry, it's fortunately, tech is very forgiving because tech is like, can you code? Can you do this? Do you have the certification that shows your level of competency for other areas like finance? Forget it. It's an old boys club, right? All these people who go to Harvard and all these other schools, they sort of have to justify why they went to those schools. And therefore, they only hire because they think a certain way. But sales like you don't like it's like, look, if you can sell, you have numbers based, you know, it works. But yes, there are certain things and I see it all the time. It depends by company. Some companies don't care, and some companies you really have to prove yourself. And it's sad, but I think the tides are changing, and you know now a lot of the big companies are dropping the requirement, and that's the first step. You know, first the conversation's being had, right? It's a conversation everywhere you go. 99% of people say, hey, they love what I'm doing. Even people with degrees, they say they love what I'm doing. 1% of people, you know, will be sort of confrontation, but that's anything. There's never anything that 100% of people agree on. Even if you told someone, hey, I'm giving away free money, no strings attached. There's one person like, I don't believe in getting free money, blah, blah, blah. Right? It's just no matter what, not everyone will be on the same page.
0: We talk a lot about how people can pitch themselves and how people can leverage video yeah. to get in front of actually just yesterday. It's so interesting because just yesterday we wrote a blog post and then started at the beginning of like a video that we're actually producing on how video can be used for recruiting from both perspectives, recruiting someone, but then also, you know, job seekers, right? Yeah. So one of the things that I am always curious about, and sometimes I get a little bit frustrated about this, why they don't use video to capture themselves, to do a screen video of their resume, to go through some yeah. portfolio piece and then send that to a prospective you know, employer candidate. Why don't more people do that? Why are they living in a, in a text-based email situation? Here's my email. Here's my resume. Why don't they put their foot forward and use video? I always wonder this.
1: Because honestly, they don't know. It's simple as that. It's like email is commonplace, right? You're so used to sending email. I'm pretty sure if you told them, hey, if you send a video to a recruiter introducing yourself, you have a much higher shot, people would do it. But also, other than that, people just don't know. There is a comfort level, right? Getting on video isn't easy for a lot of people, especially like females. They need to be in makeup. They need to be a certain thing. Maybe they need to do Hey, even males, like you got to be in a certain mood. And it's also not easy doing video. Right. Not in the sense that if you've never done video, it's very intimidating. Right. So I think that's sort of why it's not the norm. People also don't know how to do video. You always hear this, the saying that we're our own worst critics. Like, see, the thing is, I'm not a perfectionist. I'll post videos. But even when I watch out, I was like, if I were not confident, I'm going to see I'm twitching. I'm blinking. I'm not looking straight at the camera. So I think that's one factor. I, what I tell people, go meet people in person, because the thing is, that's your cover letter. When you go and you meet someone in person and you introduce yourself, there are very few job seekers who I come across. Like I was at a networking event yesterday. There were like hundreds of people, only like five people were looking for work. If you're one of those five people and you were in the room and someone was hiring, you actually have a shot. Instead of applying online, you can say, hey, this is what I'm doing. This is my motivation. And it's a casual conversation. It's not a nerve-wracking interview. It's a casual conversation where you can explain to them. They can tell you what they're looking for. And look, even if they're not hiring, people always know someone who's hiring. So I tell people, look, if it's not video, get in person because how many emails do recruiters or people get a day? How many applications do they get? Right? A lot. How many people actually show up at an event they're going to?
0: Real life is – there's nothing better than that. You're 100% correct. If you can find that situation, always recommend it. It's hard though. Yeah, it is tough. Sometimes they're expensive. A lot of these conferences – You know, it's crazy expensive. You know, I've seen coverages for a thousand bucks for one. day. Yeah,
1: yeah, I've seen it. You know what I tell people about networking is that go to one event when you go to one event because people who go to networking events go to other networking events. Yes. Once you go to one event, they'll say, hey, you know what? There's this event that's good for you. You should check it out. I started networking this year (laughs) actively. Right. These type of events. From that, they tell me, oh, I'm part of this. I'm part of that. And you'd be surprised there are a lot that are free. There are these volunteer organizations that mentor people. There are these other organizations. And through that, you just meet so many people who are doing amazing things who are definitely willing to help you out.
0: Yeah. No, you're 100% correct, man. It's, it's all about getting out there. And it's, yeah. like, it, it's a numbers game. It's such yeah. a numbers game in so many ways. you know. And I think the power of networking is the network effect. It is. Because, you know, and I think that, you know, I personally have invested a lot of time, a lot of resources into kind of my own kind of personal network. Yeah. And it's an investment. And you know, I think one of the things that people don't realize is that it's a very long-term investment. You don't it get is. ROI on it overnight. Six months to two years, you know, but once you start actually investing into it, it's amazing what you can do. I've heard really successful people say, I'll never worry about being unemployed. I'll never worry about going broke because I always have my network to be able to put in a call to, to be able to, you know, make an arrangement with so that I'm good and I'm set up and it's a life investment.
1: Yeah. And hundred percent, like a lot of people want this tree in their backyard. Let's say you want this huge tree in your backyard, but it's like, it takes 20 years to grow that tree. And that's what networking is. And you have to water that tree. You have to watch it. You have to protect it. You have to nurture it. Same thing as network. And, you know, you want the fruits of the tree. It takes time, right? You don't just like I said, you don't. a lot of people will go to one or two events and they'll be like, oh, networking doesn't work. There are some people who I've met two, three years ago who are sort of now using me for business. And it's like, had I not done it, had I not been in contact with them, had I not watered that relationship, it wouldn't have happened. And it's like, I'm in that position where it's like, I know more about the lives of the people from a company I worked three companies ago. So it's been well over two years since I worked at that company than people within that own company. Why? Mm. Because I actually say, hey, what's up? I'll stop by the office. Meanwhile, the person who sits a cubicle 50 feet away doesn't do that. And it's like, look, in anything in life, whether you have a degree or not, you have to put in the work. You have to do the things that other people are not doing. You have to step out of your comfort zone in order to be like this. And it's like, I'm fortunate enough. Let's say my business fails, right? I know that I can make a couple of phone calls like, hey, do you have any intros? And just like that, I know I won't have to go through the gruesome process of a regular job search because it's emotionally draining. You know, it's a numbers game and it sucks.
0: Yeah. So what do you recommend for folks right now? I mean, if someone is in a situation, they're looking for a gig, they're looking for a job. What's like your checklist? What's your to do list that they should start doing? Obviously networking, get themselves out there. Yeah.
1: Networking. So keep themselves out there. And it's like, be, be real. If you're like an introvert, just go one event a week and just aim to talk to two people. I'm not going to tell an introvert. Oh yeah. Go to five networking events and talk to 50 people at each event. That's just recipe for failure. Make sure your resume is on point. So Google ATS resumes because the ATS is the applicant tracking systems and they have certain rules like you have to structure your resume a certain way. You can't have certain symbols. You know, a lot of people are doing colors and all these fancy resumes. But an ATS is like most companies use the same ATS system and these fancy resumes don't make the cut. So first, your resume has to actually pass the filter. I get so many resumes and 90 percent of them are garbage. And look, I suck at that stuff. But go on Google, type in ATS resume format. Take that format. You don't have to create your own format. Just do that. Get someone to help you with your resume. And I tell people, it's a numbers game. Apply to as many, like when you're looking for a job, job seeking is your job. I tell people, yeah, I've been looking for a job for months. And it's like, all right, how many of you apply? One a day. It's like, come on. I went to an Ivy League school. I applied to 100 jobs. I got called back interviews for like three to five. And I'm a great candidate and I only apply for roles that made sense for me, right? So it's like, if someone like me is struggling, I know other people are struggling. And it's like, The other factor is a lot of people don't know the talents that they have. A lot of people Mm -hmm. think like, I talked to so many people. They're like, oh, I worked in this industry. How can I transfer? It's like, well, don't you have your communication skills? Don't you have sales skills? Didn't you work in a team? Didn't you work with other people? Didn't you manage people? Didn't you deal with conflict? Didn't you deal with vendors, bosses, other stakeholders? And they're like, yeah. So I was like, what's so different about this other job? Maybe you just need to pick up this one skill. And when you present, you have, you're coming from a unique experience. Like this company deals with $10 million deals. In your previous industry, you dealt with $20 million deals. So it's like, you actually are more qualified than a typical candidate. So a lot of people have to know how to position themselves. And it's hard because it's hard to sell yourself, right? Because a lot of people are told that, oh no, you got to be humble. You can't put yourself out there. And a lot of people are not confident. So it's like, pick up that confidence, believe in yourself, know what you have and know what you bring to the table. Cause it's like. There are so many people who are working jobs who are not qualified for it. So if an unqualified person can work a job, a qualified person can definitely run circles around them.
0: So you mentioned confidence. You know, we talk about that a lot. I explore this topic a lot because your earlier point, it does take confidence to do video and it does take confidence to put yourself out there. It's a big, important part of just being presentable and being approachable. If people struggle with that, what is your recommendation for them? How can people gain confidence?
1: Okay, so what I tell people is you have to change how they view confidence. Sometimes people view confidence as something as people have or don't have. Confidence is a skill, and just like any skill, it can be worked on. You look at the best people who are doing anything – Yes, LeBron James is good at basketball, but he didn't wake up being LeBron James, right? He does have many natural gifts, but he put in the work. He went to practice. He built on it. He failed. He missed shots. Same thing. Confidence is a skill. So you build on it. So first, you're uncomfortable doing video. Maybe record a video where you don't post it. Just record a video. Take baby steps. I tell people always baby steps because, yes, you have to step out of your comfort zone. But I tell people just step a little outside your comfort zone. Don't go too much outside your comfort zone. It's a recipe for disaster. And you're like, I'll never do this again. So let's say you're not confident. Go present to two of your friends, right? I tell people for interviewing, practice saying your answers out loud, right? Even record yourself saying your answers out loud. Because that way, when you walk into an interview, if that's not the first time you're saying that answer, if that's not the first time you hear that question, you're going to sound more natural. And it's like an oxymoron that I have a LinkedIn live show and a lot of people say, oh, you're so natural. What a lot of people don't get is I've been part of Toastmasters, a public speaking organization for five years. I've had hundreds of conversations. I've worked on that. I've messed up and I've been put on the spot. And it's only because I've done so much that I come across as natural on camera. Same thing. It's like it took time to build the confidence. I didn't start out presenting to audiences of 100, 200. I started out presenting to like 10 to 20 people. I got comfortable with that. Our club grew. I presented to bigger audiences. So I tell people confidence is a skill and just work on it. Baby steps, you know, just work on it a little every week. And you'd be surprised at how far you come across, how much progress you make in two, three months to a year. And it's a lifelong journey that you're always going back and forth. And sometimes you'll have good days. Sometimes you'll have bad days. But look at the overall trend and, you know, work on that progress.
0: This this reminds me of this paradox that, that I've explored a little bit, which is that, you know, our eyes are looking out. Yeah. Our ears are looking out, our mouth is looking out. The only thing that's actually inward inside of us is our brain, which you can't see, which is not visible. So it's so interesting because, you know, here we are not able to view ourselves, yeah. you know, not able to look in the mirror, not able to give ourselves feedback. And to criticize, to self-criticize, you know, only is it when you hit record, have a video on your hard drive, on your phone, look into a mirror. That's the only time that you can actually, you know, self-criticize. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's such an important thing for us to do. I did exactly what you're saying to build my confidence for video. That was my hack. My hack was I recorded videos while I was driving. I didn't look at the camera. I was safe. I was looking at the road, but I would just record myself talking. And what that allowed me to do is that it allowed me to find my voice Yeah, and it allowed me to find my confidence, but it also allowed me to understand how I communicate, what my filler words are. Do I say yes? Do I say um, do I say basically? And to kind of work on those and then figure out when it's appropriate, but then when it's not and when it's superfluous and when it's just me thinking. And that process was really important to me. And now, you know, networking, recording videos, shaking hands, getting myself out there. It's a daily, daily routine. Yeah. And, and I, it's incremental in nature, but it's been a tremendous, tremendous experience for me to actually invest in that.
1: Yeah, like I tell people, join Toastmasters. It's very cheap, right? For six months, the fee is like 45 bucks. It's a good way to step outside of your comfort zone. And the fact is you don't have to speak right away. Just watch others speak. Just talk to someone after the meeting. Start small. And I've seen people grow like I've seen people cry during their first speech because they legit had like anxiety. You know, they had a legitimate like almost phobia of public speaking. And I've seen them next speech. They don't cry. They're on the verge of crying. And I've seen people over years, like I remember this girl, she presented, she was tearing during her presentation in class. And now she, you know, giving speeches and it all started with that one, right? Getting outside your comfort zone and starting. So it's like, find a way where you can sort of get up there and speak because it's just it's practice, right? If you don't get in front of people speaking, you lose it. And you look at all these professional speakers, they've done it for so long or they're practicing for hours and hours, right? It's not like they just go up there and say, hey, I'm going to wing this, right? It just doesn't happen. So don't be intimidated by people who are good because people who are good have been practicing it. It's not that they were just born good. And I think once people understand that, it's a lot easier for people to come in terms with themselves. And like you said, the finding the voice, find your voice. Once you find your voice, once you understand your style, like the style that works for you, probably not going to work for me. And the style that works for me is not going to be the style that works for you. And it's like know how to filter advice because a lot of people say you have to do it this way. You have to do it that way. And it's like I break the rules all the time, but it works because it's authentic and genuine for me.
0: That's the key right there. You know, if we can find our voice, what's comfortable for us, that, something that we're confident in, something that we can lean into, something where we don't feel like we have to pretend to be someone else. Yeah. That's the most liberating thing, man. Because, I, you know, what I see people do a lot is that they see someone on the internet, they see someone on LinkedIn or YouTube, and they say, I want to be like that person. Yeah. And they buy the clothes and they get the get up and they start talking like them and they get the vibe and it's not coming from a real place. Yeah. You know, and I think there's this kind of a secondary component to that, which is that if you jump in and you try to emulate someone else then you expect to get the same type of results and that's where all the craziness happens because it's actually a self-fulfilled prophecy of failure because you go in saying i'm gonna do this it works for someone else i'm gonna expect to get the same results you don't get the results you get discouraged you lose your confidence you stop doing that and then now you're in actually the same or a worse place and it's a terrible place whereas to your point you know start communicating with one person in mind
1: yeah that's the easiest way who is that person Yeah. And like you said, you got to be yourself. And look, to be yourself, you are the culmination of many people. So mm. you could say, I really admire this part of this guy. So I want to take this thing from this guy. I want So you're going to take 10 or 20 things from, you know, from 10 or 20 people, you're each going to take one or two things from them. So I would say kind of think of it like that. But yeah, you can't be somebody else because it's not authentic and people are going to be like, what? And it's exhausting, too. It's not sustainable. You're going to burn out or eventually it's like the 10 minutes people see a video of you backstage or something like that, they'll be like, what, that's him, right? Or that's her?
0: Well, that I mean, that's why it's so important to, you know, I did stand-up comedy once. Oh, that's tough. It was hard. It was, everyone needs to do stand-up comedy. Actually, yeah. the reason why I did it was because someone, t- I said years ago, a decade ago, you know, I was like, hey, listen, I want to do more public speaking. I want to get more yeah. confidence when I communicate, business, networking, stages. And they said, do stand-up. And I said, what? Do stand-up. And I said, why? And they said, because you're on a stage and typically, if you're going to do stand up, you're at an open mic, which is all comedians, yeah. and they don't laugh at other people's jokes because guess what? They've heard them all yeah, and they're yeah. there for business, right? They're there kind of to not be entertained, but just to be, you know, to get there two, three minutes. So you get this harsh, harsh audience and you got to come up with something, either improv or something that's scripted. And that experience for me, it changed my life. This was at the Laugh Factory. I recorded the whole thing. I put a YouTube video about it. But that was a really important thing for me to be able to say, you know what? This is who I am. I'm not going to try to pretend to be someone else. I'm going to laugh at myself before anyone else does. Yeah. And I'm not going to try to fake it. You know, this is what my office looks like and this is what my hair looks like and this is what my jacket looks like with this gorilla's t-shirt. Oh, I like it. Oh, yeah. So, you know, that's where I landed on that. But, you know, I think the other thing, though, is that it's a ritual. Yeah. And if you don't get to that daily ritual, you're done, you know. Yeah.
1: And I've seen it happen where like people they've been on the public speaking circuit, they had a lot, and they stop, mm. and then they're not the same when they go back. Like it's not you know just like you know you stop practicing a sport, you stop doing it. When you go back, yes, you can pick it up faster than you did before, but you still have a rust period. So it's like yeah, you got to keep improving, you got to keep exercising that muscle because it's like yeah, you don't hit the gym for a year, no matter if you're the world's strongest man,
0: you're gonna lose. You know, there's this great interview with Jerry Seinfeld and Eddie Murphy. It's such a good one. The host asks Eddie Murphy, hey, are you ever going to get back on stage? Because, you know, Eddie yeah. Murphy back in the 80s, yeah, I mean, he God. was the man. Yeah, I mean, he was the man. Like, It was insane. It was so good. But, you know, he had, Jerry, I think, asked him, hey, are you going to get back on stage? And the answer effectively was basically no. You know, I wonder, and I think that that's changed since yeah. I've gotten some inklings about this. I feel like yeah. Eddie's making a comeback, but yeah. You know, I'm really curious to see what that's going to be like because it's been a while since he's yeah. been on a stage. Extremely produced. You know, he went from rated yeah. R movies and now all within the last yeah. 10, 15 years, all like PG-13 kind of family. Yeah, yeah So what I is know. that going to look like for him? Is he going to go back to rated R yeah. Eddie or is he going to family Eddie? Yeah, I don't yeah. know. I'm no. curious.
1: And it's tough because even Jerry, you bring up Jerry Seinfeld. After he did Seinfeld, right, and the, the show was success and it ended, he did one comedy routine, right, and he said it flopped. Like Jerry Seinfeld, right, this funny guy who you know one of the best and most famous comedians out there he flopped because he didn't practice he said when he got back on the circuit he got booed and all that stuff and look if that can happen to someone who's up there right in the top one top point one percent it can happen to anyone so it's like yeah you got to keep at it use it or you lose it it's just how it is and for everyone
0: yeah, man. I mean, these people, these these greats, you know, they're always um they're maniacal about practicing their craft. Yeah. They're always at it. They're always writing. They have a journal, yeah. you know, ideas. You know, it, it's funny, my sister randomly met Russell Peters and they became friends. So Oh she, that's cool. So she actually invited Russell to our house. I wasn't there, but he was kind of playing um, Karen board with my mom. And there's this oh, funny video. This,
1: is, this he, is awesome.
0: Yeah. But it was funny because, you know, he was cracking jokes. Yeah. You know, and he's figuring out what works and what doesn't work. So that when he's eventually on stage or he's doing his next, you know, Netflix special or at the yeah. Apollo, whatever it is, he says, you know what? That joke worked.
1: Yeah. A lot of people don't realize that MSG All those jokes were performed many times before. And oftentimes Mm -hmm. they started in basement comedy clubs. Like you said, they practice on their friends. They practice. Even look, when I talk and write, because I give presentations, I look at other presentations. I see, you know what? This person did that well. This person did that well. I could incorporate that a little in my style this way. Or you know what? I think I could improve upon that. And even when I'm talking to people, I'm careful about the words I use. I observe myself. I'm good enough in the sense that I'm not a harsh critic. I can give myself a good amount of criticism. That's healthy, right? Not so much that that's going to stop me from doing what I do, but I can be honest with myself. And, right, that's what you have to do to be great. You have to know what you're good at, what you're not good at, what you can improve. And, you know, you're constantly working at it.
0: So what was the experience of Toastmasters for you? Dude, it was good because
1: I was the first president at Columbia University Toastmasters. And I ran in a post. So I'm not going to say, like, I ran against 10 people. I was the only one that ran. And, you know, the first few months it was good because the semester now I'm going to tell you, Ivy League students don't care about public speaking. If we kept the club only to Columbia students, it would have died. Students only care about parting and grades. They don't care about they're not long term. They only care about what's in front of them. So during the summer, it was tough. I had a meeting. Dude, it was four people. One of them was my nephew who was six years old at the time. And, you know, but the thing is, it was like (laughs) we had so many meetings where it was like it was a growing club. Right now, we're the second largest club in North America. But before that, for the first few years, it was like I had to be there because if I wasn't there, the club was going to die. I was the string that kept everything together. There were times I didn't want to go, but I was like, look, I got to go because what happened? Let's say we had only one person sign up to speak. That person dropped. Guess what? I had to give a speech that I sort of had in my head and I had to give it on the spot. There were meetings where I had four to five roles. Like, I would be the Toastmaster. I'd give a speech. I'd evaluate another speech. I'd evaluate the meetings. But that's what got me so good because it forced me. And I was never prepared. Like, I couldn't prepare because I never knew who's going to drop out. I never knew what was needed. So that was a great experience for me. And it's like, it really pushed me. And, you know, that's how I got good because it's like, when you physically can't prepare for something, but you have to do it, you're just forced to react. You're forced to get better at it. And it's just... Over time, and then eventually the club became it grew, we didn't have that as much, and that was when I could actually take a step back. And then I was able to focus on giving my speeches and doing other aspects, so that's why it was a really eye opening experience. And I it was just the feedback people gave, you know, just like seeing the feedback, like, hey, you do this. Like, when I don't practice public speaking, my word is right, I say that at the end of every sentence, like, right. And I think my girlfriend caught this yesterday, I was on the phone with someone, she was like, every time I ask a question, I say, question. So I was like, you know, you got to mix it up. So I say, question, what do you think about this? So, Because you can't really hear yourself. Do
0: it. Uh, you're just
1: not thinking. You're just saying it straight. And that's what really gets you. So I would highly recommend anyone, even if it's not permanent, just go check it out six months to a year. I think now I'm at the point where it's like I have my LinkedIn live show. I have that. So people give me feedback through other means. But it's a great way to start public speaking.
0: So here's what I'd love to get from you yeah. right now. Assume that. I've given you some presentation in this yeah. call here and first of all, I want to get some harsh criticism. What would you yeah. do? What would you say to me? Am I using filler words? Am I using my hands too much? So and then secondly, give me the crash course.
1: I wouldn't want to give harsh criticism. I'd want to give fair criticism and the beauty of Toastmasters is for most people, they give the right amount of criticism for someone who's giving their first speech. I'm not going to evaluate it like someone who's been speaking for five years. And the fact is you want to give different feedback. Someone who's more advanced is looking for more subtle things like vocal variety, word choice, specific types of eye contact, hand gestures, how they move around on stage. Someone who's giving their first speech, you want to talk about what they're good at and, hey, pointing out like, you know what, you tend to move your hands or when you're talking in a certain direction, you're looking down. That's the type of feedback you'd give to a first person. I wouldn't want to give really harsh feedback just because it's like it's demoralizing Right. It's like you don't want to do that to someone because, look, they're doing something that most people are afraid of. They're out there trying to improve themselves. So why rip them apart? Right. Yeah. They'll remember that. They'll never want to do it again. Like, oh, I'm so terrible. So it's like so the crash course is in Toastmasters. You have the president introduces the meeting. You have someone called a Toastmaster. And they're the one who has the agenda and they'll introduce the speaker. They'll introduce the next role. They'll guide the meeting. Then you have speakers and speakers give speeches. And their speeches are timed, so the timer. Let's say you're supposed to give a six-minute speech, four to six minutes. At four minutes, they'll show a green card, five minutes, yellow card, six minutes, red card. Because timing is very important. I'm pretty sure you've been to conferences, and speakers who go over suck. It's annoying. It ruins the rest of the day. It pushes on the speaker back. It always cuts into lunch. It always cuts into the break. You know, timing is improved. Then they have someone who counts your filler words, the ahs, ums, you knows, the so's. And the way we do it at my club, is, someone has more than five of a certain one, like you said, you know more than five times, we won't say, oh, you said, you know, 32 times. We'll say he said it more than five times. And if that specific person wants to ask how many times did I say it, we'll give the feedback. Then we have the grammarian, any grammatical errors that people make, they'll point it out. Most of the time, most people don't have them. So they'll say, hey, you know what? It was beautiful the way you combine these words or this level, this alliteration you use or this metaphor was powerful. Then they have something called table topics and table topics is a part of the club. They have someone called the table topics master and they have come up with a list of questions. Sometimes there'll be a theme for the tape. So I guess Halloween just passed. So Halloween would be the theme, like scary. And they'll ask questions. So they'll ask, what was the scariest thing that ever happened to you? And you have to talk about it for at least one minute. Right. And the goal is just to get up there and talk. And that's the improv section, because, yes, there's prepared sections, But in networking, it's all improv. It's all responding to feedback, responding to questions. Conversation is all really improv. And then the meeting is evaluated. But it's just such a good environment to really work on your public speaking, because where else can you work on your public speaking? Right. You a corporate. of presentations are boring and people are like grabbing their coffee and you see the eyes roll back and it's like every job description says excellent communication skills. How many people do you actually know with excellent communication skills, right? Very few. It's not required for all jobs. I don't know why every single job description has it when there are very few people that could actually keep me awake when I'm tired in a corporate meeting.
0: So I guess what you're talking about really is how to engage people, how to deliver information, how to tell stories really at yeah. the end of the day. Yeah. Telling stories, it's, it also allows you to find your style because
1: I've seen people, right? The first speech is just to get up there and talk. Second speech is to really start working on a few aspects of public speaking. And as you go, you're going to see that people start developing your style. And I think it's a very safe environment because look, you mess up a Toastmaster speech, who cares? They're going to clap for you. You've had people cry. If you cry during your corporate presentation, you cry during an interview, look, it most likely it's not gonna work out for you. So it's like, look, it's a super safe environment. No one's gonna judge you. The type of people to go to those types of meetings, they're proactive, they're friendly, they're there to help you. And it's like, it's a good way to sort of meet proactive people, make friends, and just improve yourself. So that's why it's like, I tell people, just check it out.
0: Why do we feel fear? Why do we feel the butterflies before an interview or a presentation or a speech? Because we care, you know, I tell people like when
1: let's say you're going to go to your favorite restaurant, you don't have fear, you've done it, you know, you sort of know what to expect. Nothing's going to go wrong, right? When you wake up to brush your teeth, you don't fear brushing your teeth. It's something you've done so many times, right? Cause you know, okay, I'm gonna brush my teeth, whatever is gonna take a few minutes. When you go to your friend's house, you don't fear anything because there's sort of, you have nothing to lose, right? But we fear because we care, right? What if it goes wrong? It's an evolutionary response, right? We have to have fear because if you weren't afraid of the lions and you walked up to one, you'd probably get eaten by one, right? We fear because there's natural reasons for why fear is necessary. But the thing is, in today's society, when you fear, it's not like how it was hundreds or thousands of years ago, where fear usually meant like, hey, I'm going to die. Right. Why do you fear heights? Right. Because if you fall, you're going to die or you're going to get injured. You know, why do you fear these animals like snakes and stuff? Because if they bite you, you may get hurt. So we fear because of the negative consequences, because we care about the result. If you don't care about the result, then you really don't have no fear
0: so if i have fear of a, a predator in nature it's a healthy thing it's gonna it's make thing. Me react if yeah. i have fear before i'm getting on a stage is that it's, a healthy thing it's still healthy there's nothing wrong with being like there's one of. so i'm a
1: big mma fan so the, one of my favorite fighters one of the greatest fighters of all time is george st pierre and you know one of the best fighters of all time he still gets nervous before every fight and he's a professional this is what he does for a living he's one of the best at it at all time right it's just a natural reaction Right? It's OK. And what I tell people is physiologically, whether you're scared or excited, your body has the same response. Your heart rate's going up. You're sweating. Right, Your face is getting red. So one trick I tell people is instead of telling yourself, I'm nervous, I'm scared, just say, hey, I'm excited. It's a little psychological trick that you can use to sort of you have a presentation. You're like, look, I'm excited. That's why I'm sweating. I'm not sweating because I'm scared. And that really works for a lot of public speakers. So, again, it's a healthy reaction. Just again, just make sure it doesn't stop you. If you have a speech, it doesn't stop you from doing the speech. Right. Kind of use it and say it's okay. It's a natural reaction, but that shouldn't stop you from doing what you want to do.
0: So you mentioned uh, MMA. I know that you're a former wrestler. How has that sport helped you in your life? Dude,
1: because the thing with wrestling is you got to put in the work like there, it's a very unforgiving sport, right? I see kids who are very talented, but like you can't miss practice. Like when I went in like two years, I missed like two practices one time because I had the SAT. Look, there were days I missed school, but I showed up to practice right? Because that's what it is. It's like, look, you got to show up. You got to put in the extra work. And at the end of the day, it's like, it's you and your opponent. You can't really blame somebody else. Like, yeah, team sports, you can say, oh, this guy missed a shot. This guy missed the ball. Wrestling is an individual sport. And there's nothing worse than a loss because then it's like, look, I didn't do enough or I worked so hard and this guy's still that much better than me that I couldn't do anything. So it's a super humbling sport. And you know what? You just learn so much. The culture is so good. And it really, it's all about technique because a lot of People think, yeah, you got to be the strong, you know, but you'd be surprised that a lot of it's like technique. It's like repetition, doing the same move thousands of times practicing. So that's what like, it really humbled me. Like wrestling, like I went to wrestling camps and everything. And it was just like, look, work, work, work. You got to be smart about it. You got to be strategic about it. And that's why I like, I love the sport. And that's why I'm an assistant wrestling coach. Cause that sport changed my life. And I'm the assistant wrestling coach for, I'm actually going to go today. My former head coach, like he's a good friend of mine. Like that dude changed my life. And you know, he's super stubborn and- And it's kind of funny in certain aspects, but it's like he showed me that's what really got me confidence because it was like, look, I could do this, man. I could freaking, you know, I used to lose lots of weight in a short amount of time. I used to do crazy runs. You know, it just shows like it's a sport that breaks you, right? But it builds you back up.
0: I see Muhammad Ali behind you
1: dude yeah i have muhammad ali and joe frazier i love them
0: smoking joe
1: smoking joe i so i went to philadelphia and i took a picture next to the statue i didn't see the rocky statue because the rocky statue joe frazier is the rocky you know that guy is the man
0: yeah 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 muhammad ali said it best you know he said "Flow like a butterfly sting like a bee right
1: yeah and he also said that joe frazier brought out the best in him you know the thing is about these sports is like muhammad i think frazier was a champ he was a champ
0: from early 70s right
1: yeah the thing is when muhammad so he gave Ali his first loss. Mm. You know, so I think both were undefeated or I'm not sure if Frazier, but he gave Ali his first loss. And you know what, like I love Ali, but Ali deserved that loss, you know? Cause like, I love Frazier too, you know? He just has like, he read his life story. So he used to play in, he, he lived on a farm and one day he was like, I'm gonna be a boxer. And his family like sort of laughed at him and he just like did the bag, would punch the bag. And I think one day he like poked like a hog with a stick or something and he, it like injured him. So he's known for his left hook and he'd always keep it in a certain position. Cause he couldn't straighten it out so that he was known for his left hook. So it's just like, I don't know, boxing, you know, like the combat sports is just different. I think when Ali, one of the fights that he fought him, Joe Frazier's corner stopped the fight. Cause he's like, yo Joe, you're done. And Ali was in the corner and Ali was about to not come out. Ali was like, that's the closest he ever felt to dying how did he beat muhammad ali dude so the thing is muhammad ali so joe frazier had a certain style muhammad ali threw slow uppercuts so there was a gap if you realize when he knocked down ali in the 14th round ali throws a lazy uppercut so he throws it it leaves him open and joe throws this mean left hook and he was catching him with left hook but that was the one where he knocked ali down but you know ali is a beast in his own right because he gets hit with this mean left hook and he's like he just gets up like this guy hit me (laughs) you know so you know these guys are just warriors and you know. know so i don't think there was anybody that was beating joe frazier that night like you know he just Mm -hmm. showed up that day
0: well i mean so much of winning is a
1: mind game it is it is i mean that's what ali was known for you know a lot of people say like oh yeah it was like most people lose to ali before they're in the ring right like this guy Mm. freaking fought the u.s government you know and he won the supreme court case it's like that guy i don't know there's like one thing even if someone may be physically superior to him this guy had like an unwavering belief in himself you know because think about it back in the day He was like, Look, he's this black dude who says, Look, I'm beautiful. I'm pretty. I hate you guys. And then it's funny because there were a lot of governors and senators at the time. You know, obviously, after he was known as a hero for the Vietnam War, but during that time, a lot of people they hated him. If you read his book, they talk about how much they hated him. They hated, they would, they hated seeing him win because he was just like a rejection. He rejected the modern constructs of society. He rejected the modern constructs of beauty, that he was this cocky guy who wasn't supposed to be cocky, right? He wasn't supposed supposed to be that and he did it and he was like look I'm not listening to anybody and that's why like I love him just like so inspirational and if you read about him it's just like he always gave autographs like I actually personally know someone in one of my networking groups he used to sell sports memorabilia he found the golden glove shorts for Muhammad Ali he met Muhammad Ali and he's like hey can you sign this Cassius Clay because that was his name at the time before he changed it and he was like he did it no issues like you know some people might have got offended but he was super nice to his fans and I think you know the fact that he was the greatest But, you know, he gave a voice to like those people who didn't have a voice That's sort of like, yes, he was a boxer, but he like fought for life. You know, he fought for like his people. And even then there was one time where he went to Iraq because Saddam had like 15 hostages and this guy went to Iraq and he got all 15 hostages released. You know, like the dude risked his life. You know, that's what he did. So, you know, mm. that's why I always have immense respect for him. And, and and how did he do that? He's just Muhammad Ali, man. He just negotiated, talked to Saddam. You know, it's crazy. He ran out of his arthritis. I mean, the Parkinson's med. So he couldn't stand and stuff. He still showed up to the press conference. And then they emerged, got some emergency thing. And he just, like, talked to Saddam. And I think, like, Muhammad Ali is one of the few athletes that's, like, a global icon. When he died, it was, like, crazy. Like, he could go to any country. He mm-hmm. could go to Africa. He could go to Bangladesh. He could go to Korea. Like, everybody loves it. It's because, like, this dude... in. The pinnacle of his career, he gave it up and he said, Look, I'm gonna stand up for what I believe in. And regardless of whether you agree with him or not, that's super respectable. And it's like, you know, because there's so many times where it's like you're at this point where you could do so much, and he did it. Like he did what a lot of people are too scared to do, and he was broke. Like he couldn't fight, he couldn't do this. Because what a lot of people did was they got on medical leave for the draft, saying, Like, hey, I can't go because my foot hurts, or my I have this, or they flee the country, they go to Canada, they go to other country he's like look i'm not going anywhere i'm here i'm gonna say no to you i'm gonna fight it and what a lot of people don't get is that it's not that he wasn't afraid to die it's just that because he was a famous boxer he would never step foot on the battlefield because they would have had him either sell war bonds or do exhibitions for the troops. but he's like look i'm not gonna fight for a country that doesn't respect me i'm not because a former boxer joe lewis he was also a heavyweight champ. When he fought, he got drafted. What he did was he did exhibitions for the soldiers. He would get paid for those exhibitions. Now, the issue was black soldiers couldn't attend. So he used all the money from that so the black soldiers could attend his exhibitions. Now, what happened is the government was really unfair to him. The IRS came hounding him years later. They're like, look, that money you donated, was that was taxable income. You got to pay taxes on him. And mm. he saw how that guy who did was supposed to do for his country got thrown to the side. So he's like, look, I'm not doing it and he got so many deals where they're like look his mom and the nation of islam was like look just say yes you know just make it easy he's like no they gave him deals like hey look just say you're sorry you know we'll work out a deal and he said no he had a sweetheart deal and he still said no because he's like look publicly i gotta do this
0: I mean, that's a cause. I mean, I think that the theme here is really, you know, fighting for a cause. And I think what's really inspirational about your story is that you're fighting for a cause, you know, and there's this audience and there's this group of people out there. There's millions, tens of millions of people like that in the States alone. Yeah. And they need a voice. And I feel like this idea that you got to do X, which is to go get the university degree and you got to get that piece of paper in order to show up in this club. You know, that whole idea is old school now. It doesn't make a lot of sense anymore. Now it's about the school of Hard Knocks Life. It's about experience. It's about doing the matches and doing the fights and being on the stage and being in that rink and just putting in the effort. Yeah, like my ultimate goal with no degree is to remove the stigma attached
1: to people without college degrees because I'm having someone on my podcast and she's a very successful entrepreneur. She has a podcast marketing company and she was like throughout her life. She always struggled because she was successful, but she was like, oh, should I go back to, you know, get this piece of paper? And then eventually she came to a point that was, hey, I'm successful. I don't need this. I want people to realize that much earlier i don't want people to feel like because a lot of people have that like oh i didn't go to this school or i didn't go to this level i'm not smart and it's like look i want to change that i want to change the way people view themselves and i want to change
0: the way others view them that's a hell of a cause man i'm on board and i i want to support in any way i can you know my pitch to folks out there that want to present themselves to get themselves get a foot in the door if you will is to record a pitch video do a screen video do a walkthrough of a resume or something that you've created something that you've done and get that in front of your seekers and uh you know and do that 100 times and you know dub is is we have a completely free option where you can actually integrate a direct video a screen video a webcam video phone video and then you can email that to someone it takes just a couple of seconds to do i'd love to see as many people as possible to start to do that because I use use it every day. I've seen people, I've seen tens of thousands of people use it. And it works wonders when you can get your best, truest, most authentic self in front of a person and not have to go through that chase.
1: No. And you have a good video. Cause I know when I signed up for this meeting, you had the, and I watched it. I was like, wow, this is, this is good. And it's like, I already know a little more about you before we even talked I was like oh that's cool and you know what I definitely got to use it because I get asked a lot of people like a lot of people on LinkedIn send me messages and it's like dude just read my profile they asked like what do you do and it's like mine is so easy like mine yeah. is a one-liner like it's not like convoluted so I got to use you know dub to create a video that's what I was planning on doing just creating one video be like hey you asked me what I do so here's what I do and just give them like the two to three minute spiel because I've answered that question way too many times
0: one of my other visions for basically everyone in the business world is to have a video calendar page like the one that you saw for me. That is honestly my, it's not a secret anymore, but that's my MVP. It's the most important asset that I have. It saves me hours every single day because people A, get to know me, I build trust, and then they book a time right in that calendar. It's free, I want you to set it up and I want everyone out there to sign up for Dub and sign up for Calendly, both on the free accounts. You don't need to pay to get that set up and get yourself a video calendar page because it will change your life.
1: (laughs) Dude, you know what, I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna do it. I just, yeah. I need it because I've just been putting it off and it's like, dude, it just say even the mental energy of answering a question that you answered 100 times. Right. You lose. Even though it's quick, it's just that mental energy. And it's like you want to free like I'd rather
0: spend the two minutes just doing something else. Right. Well, you know, my other secret is that I have a video for every single aspect of the business. I have my investor pitch video. I have my press pitch video, I've got my sales video, I've got my podcast. You,
1: you got to I have
0: probably 30 videos that I use on a daily basis. <laughs>
1: oh, and it's good because it's like now you're yeah. not sending I'm pretty sure you send those videos each like at least 20 to 50 times, but you know, yeah. 20 to 50 times that's 600 times that you save yourself, right? Just yeah. you know, minus the 30 that you recorded it. But you know that's hundreds of times that you don't have to do something, but you're still doing it, right? You did you took up upfront cost and time and yeah. investment to get that those videos out, but now it's like forever.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly, man. Cool, man. NoDegree.com. Exciting. Where can we find you on social? social so linkedin is the best way yeah
1: search up uh, my name janaed j-o-n-a-e-d i'm the only janaed out there for like with my spelling so yeah if you search up the no degree.fm is my podcast site i'm on you know apple spotify iheart radio a whole b- bunch of other platforms no is my content site but right now i'm really focusing on the podcast because a lot of people have been so much easier to consume a lot of content in a short amount of time while you're still living your life and not having an impact in a podcast. So that's why it's like, I've been really focusing on that, but yeah, you know, people could straight up email me the letter J. So J at no degree.com.
0: If they really want to, and I answer emails. Done. And then is there an asset or some sort of a, um, a guide or an ebook or a blog post that you might recommend that we can include in the show notes here in the caption?
1: Um, No, not anything specific, only because everybody has something different that they're looking Got for. It. So I'm not going to send a welder article to everybody. I'm going to say, just look, just check out the site. I would say the asset that I would say if you have an interview, episode three, so how to prepare for an interview. I would say that's probably my most influential episode because everybody's interviewing, and a lot of the tips are very good. So I would recommend episode three, so I'll include the link to that. I'll
0: send you the link to that. Cool. So no FM episode three. That's good for kind of job seekers. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Genade, man, this was awesome, man. I, I really appreciate the time and, you know, I'm inspired, man. I love your cause and uh, you know, it's amazing to connect. No, amazing to talk to you and I I loved it. I loved it, man. So, like I said, good luck with the, you know, your company. And like I said,
1: people get on dub, get on video. It's going to very few people get on video, so it's like if you're one of the few people on video
0: and <laughs>
1: even if you do it okay, you're better than everyone else.
0: Exactly. Right? It's just
1: that it's that simple.
0: Well, here we are on video. And in fact, I think an interesting stat that I learned recently is that only 1% of the people on LinkedIn actually post content on a recurring basis. So if you want to stick out of the crowd, post, create content, share videos.
1: And I tell people comments are a form of content. So even if you're commenting and just being a helpful person,
0: again, you're part of that 1%. There it is. Comments below, guys. Thanks so much. I appreciate you. Appreciate you too, Ruben. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.